pray, Lord, as Ricky uh, brings us your word today, that you would speak through him, that you would uh, calm his nerves, that you would uh, encourage his spirit as he brings us your word. I pray, Lord, that we would listen with open hearts and with open ears uh, to take what you have to say to us and to live our lives in a manner that is honoring and glorifying towards you. We commit this time into your hands. Your son's precious, holy, and worthy name we pray. Amen. You may Amen. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. I've been looking to this day for the last nine months. Um, last night, I was just overwhelmed at the support I received from so many of you, so many texts, encouraging texts that I received. Um, I just, I don't think I could start without thanking three people, uh, three people that were instrumental in today happening. Uh, the first is Sergio, our elder. Sergio is a guy that I've gotten to know a lot better in the last few months, and he has been so encouraging, so eager to help, so available. Sergio, thank you so much. I could not have done this without you. Second is Patrick. Uh, All of you know how amazing Patrick is, how willing he is to serve, how available he makes himself to all of us. Uh, Patrick was there every step of the way, and thank you, Patrick. I couldn't have done this without you. And the most important person, most important people to thank is CBC, my church family. I... I'm always at a loss for words when it comes to you guys. Uh, My friends at Grace know I don't shut up about you guys. I talk about you all the time, how amazing you are, how amazing this church is, how much God has blessed me in putting me in this church. Um, Without a congregation, I can't preach. So thank you guys so much for being so encouraging, so supportive in me doing this. It means all the difference. So with that said, uh, if you will turn your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews... We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses. And like I said, I've never been part of a more loving and a more serving church. And a big part of that is because of our view of Christ. Like Patrick said earlier, I think we do a good job of seeing Christ clearly in the scriptures and savoring him. And I think although we do a good job of that as a church, I think if all of us were honest, we would admit that we struggle with that in our individual lives. It's not uncommon for us to lose sight of who Jesus is and the role that he deserves in our life. And it's understandable, this life is not an easy life. It's full of trials, full of tribulations. We, we lose jobs, we lose family members. Our expectations for this life aren't met. We have a lot going on that competes with Jesus' role in our life. And that's similar to what the original audience of Hebrews was experiencing. They had plenty of things going on in their lives that threatened the supremacy of Jesus in their life. Most scholars, not sure where they live, but they think somewhere in Rome. They lived 25 to 30 years after the events of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And a lot of these people weren't alive or weren't present to witness Jesus' ministry. They didn't have the pleasure of seeing the uh, miracles he performed, of hearing the parables he spoke. They were the products of the apostles' ministry, like we've been studying in the book of Acts. And the audience of this letter was living in a hostile world. The pressure to leave Christianity and for them return to Judaism was very high. 
In one moment, they could have gone from being an outcast in the community, a traitor, an outsider, a reject, back to being accepted, loved, and brought back into the community they grew up in. They would have been back in a safe place. They would have been back into the same things they grew up with, the things they were familiar with. For a lot, it was an easy decision to make. And I know not many of us, hopefully, are considering a return to Judaism, but I think the pressure and the principle is still present in our lives today. The bottom line is that these people were being pulled away from Christ. They were being swayed away from him. And the reason this pressure was as high as it was, the reason why this, these people were seriously considering a change was their faulty view of Jesus. They didn't see Jesus as better than their current struggles. They didn't see Jesus as preeminent over their lives, as supreme over their circumstances. Frankly, they just had a bad theology of Jesus, a bad theology of Christ. A pastor once said, good theology fuels confidence. Bad theology fuels fear. For these Jews, their bad theology fueled their fear, and for some, fueled their apostasy. And I want us to think about where we personally go when our theology of Christ starts to warp into something it's not. However temporary, what thoughts pop into our head? What feelings start to well up inside of our soul? What do our actions start to look like? And not only what happens when that happens, but what causes that to happen in the first place? Is it trials, persecution, banishment, isolation from the community, external forces that cause an internal crisis? That's something that some of us can relate to. This life isn't an easy life. It's full of stress, sadness, sickness, evil. So many things that the enemy would love to have take the place of Jesus. Or is it the complete opposite? Is it success? It may not be trials that pull you away from Christ. It may be having everything go right in your life. Making you feel like you're independent, that you're self-sustaining, that everything you've achieved was through your own power. That, that is what the Holy Spirit is trying to address. It's trying to correct a faulty view of Jesus and help the reader place Jesus as preeminent over their life. So I want you to picture yourself in the shoes of these Jews. They, they couldn't take it anymore. They couldn't take the trials and the struggles because in their eyes, Jesus wasn't worth it. They thought the answer to life was somewhere else, many of them thinking it was the Old Covenant. And if we're honest, I think we would say we find ourselves in that, uh, that moment often. We question whether Jesus is worth it, whether life would be better without him. And it was in that moment that these people received a letter. And in that letter, they hear what is really a sermon written by someone who is trying to plead with them that Jesus is better they have someone imploring with them to recalibrate their view of Jesus and accept him. And that if they don't accept him, if they don't accept Jesus for who he is, there's nothing else for them. There is no other belief, no other person, no other covenant that is better than Jesus and the covenant that he brought 30 years prior. And that letter makes an argument that begins with long, one long sentence describing Jesus. One long, rung-on sentence that lists six characteristics of Jesus. Six characteristics that the author wants us to see and hold on to. Six characteristics that he wants us to see that Jesus is better because of these six characteristics. So read with me the first three verses of Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you will be present in our time in your word. Lord, I pray that you would recalibrate our view of Jesus, that we wouldn't see you through our own perspective, but we would see you through the lens of scripture. Lord, I ask that you sanctify us in your truth, Lord, because your word is truth, the ultimate sword source of truth. Lord, I pray that we would decrease and that you would increase. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word today through communion, and through worship. In your name I pray, amen. Six characteristics. Uh, six characteristics are representative, heir, creator, radiance, upholder, and purifier. First characteristic is representative. Now the author of Hebrews starts by mentioning the old prophets, by mentioning the old covenant. He starts out by validating that the Old Testaments were indeed representatives sent by God. They were used by God to communicate to the people of Israel. When you think about it, he used a variety of ways to communicate to those prophets. He communicated to Moses through a burning bush, Ezekiel through miraculous visions, Daniel through insane dreams, amazing ways that God used to talk to his people. And he spoke to his people through many different genres. We think about law with Deuteronomy and Leviticus. We think about Psalms and Proverbs with poetry. Narrative with Joshua and Ruth. Prophecy with Jeremiah, Daniel, Isaiah. And God was so gracious to even speak to us in the first place. God is a God that would not have been known unless he made the effort to speak to us. We could have been so easily left in the dark to find out who he is, what's wrong with us, and how to fix it. But God, in his infinite mercy, in his infinite grace, broke that silence to speak to us. He decided to tell us exactly what was wrong with us. He showed us that there was no work on earth that could earn our way to heaven. And he did that through the prophets, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. But God, speaking through ordinary men, wasn't the end of his plan. He never intended to have the ultimate mode of communication be sinful men. These prophets and the whole of the Old Testament was a pointer to something greater. And the Bible loves to use pointers to grab our attention and to point it to where it belongs. Communion is a great example. It's a pointer to Jesus and the work that he accomplished on the cross. And the Old Testament prophets were those pointers to a greater representative of God. As Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, and it is to him you shall listen. They were looking for a representative greater than Moses. Now, the Old Old Testament was fragmental. Some of your Bibles might use the words portions, meaning part, not finished. The words of the Old Testament were never meant to be the end of God speaking. He always intended to speak through a way greater than how he spoke to his people before. That mode of communication, that way of speaking to us, was his son. Now, the Greek text doesn't have the possessive pronoun his, 
The literal translation isn't he spoke to us in his son. The literal translation is he spoke to us in son, stressing the mode of communication as son. Just like we would say he spoke to us in English or he spoke to us in Spanish. The way of speaking to us was son. And it's not that the words of his son were truer than the words of the Old Testament. They aren't more infallible than the words of the Old Testament. They don't replace the words of the Old Testament. Jesus told that to us himself in Matthew 5. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He's saying that the words of the Son fulfill the promise that was made through the entirety of the Old Testament. He wants the Hebrews to be encouraged, to see and be encouraged, that the, everything they love of the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ. The Old Testament was a preparation of the promise that was accomplished through Jesus. We see this as early as Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The preparation for Jesus became known to us here. And the rest of the Old Testament was was partial revelation by prophecy. Partial revelation, piece by piece, providentially and sovereignly given us to us until God, in his infinite wisdom, decided we couldn't sit in our sin any longer. He would speak to us through his son, who knows him better than any prophet ever has, who knows him more personally than any prophet ever has. Moses got to witness a very small piece of the glory of God on Mount Sinai. But Jesus, Jesus spent eternity past in perfect love and in perfect unity with the Father. He's a representative like no other. If there was only one representative we should listen to, it should be him. Three quick reasons why he's the best representative, the ultimate representative. Number one, he is the word of God, where all the Old Testament prophets merely spoke the words of God. You see that in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. No human prophet has ever known God before God spoke to them. Number two, he is the subject of all the Old Testament prophecy, where every other prophet, prophet were objects of their prophecies. Every prophecy, every prophecy that ever, every prophet ever spoke was talking about one man, and that man was Jesus. He is the object or subject of every prophecy spoken. Those men were merely foretelling of something, someone greater to come. Number three, Jesus mediated the new covenant that was better than the covenant that Moses mediated. Now, Moses was among the most respected men in all of Judaism. You can't get much better than Moses. And in here and in chapter two, the author of Hebrews is very clear that Jesus is not only better than Moses, but that the covenant that Jesus brought is better than the one that Moses brought. Jesus came to tell us the will of the Father, just like the Old Old Testament prophets did. John 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But Jesus speaking, I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus came to communicate to us on behalf of the Father. He came to bring us the final word of God. And like I said, we don't really struggle with deciding whether to go back to Judaism or stay with Christianity. I don't think our struggle lies with going back or staying with where we are. I think some of us would struggle with wanting more revelation from God. I've been surrounded in an atmosphere that yearns, that longs for another word from God. They want so desperately for God to speak directly to them and give them an answer to their problems. And I get that. 
I think we all understand that we want the answer to our problems. We want to know the will of God. But this verse would argue that we have everything we need in the words of Jesus, that the will of God is able to be discerned from his word. We don't need God to speak directly to us to understand what he wants, because he has spoken. He has spoken to us through Jesus, the works and words of Jesus that have been written down and preserved for thousands of years for us to look on and know and rest, knowing that he has provided everything we need. Second characteristic is air. End of verse 2, or beginning of verse 2, middle of verse 2. Who may appointed heir of all things? And I think most of us know what an inheritance is. Some of, us, some of us have received one. Some of us will receive one one day. The inheritance I received from my grandfather was his model car collection. Growing up, I would spend a lot of time at his house. And 90% of that time was playing with model cars. I would take them and drive them over everything in my path, and he would teach me about different things about each one of the cars. The first thing I thought of when going to my grandpa's house was the model cars. I think it's fitting that when he passed, that's what I received. It's beautiful when the inheritance someone receives is fitting to the relationship of the one passing it on. Jesus' inheritance is specifically tailored to the relationship that he has with the Father. It's fitting to his status as the firstborn of all creation. That's what he receives, all things. And I want you to think about the phrase all things and all that it entails. I know we all have an idea of how big this universe is, but I have some numbers that I think will make it clearer and more confusing. If CBC were to get in a bus and just drive straight into space at the speed of light, 670 million miles per hour, we could go around the sun or around the earth eight times in one second. In two and a half seconds, we would reach the moon. Eight minutes later, we'd reach the sun. If we wanted to go to the nearest star, it would take 4,243 years. Say we wanted to reach the nearest galaxy, it would take 25,000 years. If we wanted to go from one edge of the Milky Way to the other edge of the Milky Way, it would take 200,000 years. If we wanted to reach the edge of the observable universe, just the universe that we have seen, it would take 13.8 billion years. And this, this is Jesus' inheritance. All 200 billion galaxies, 10 heptillion, which is a 10 with 24 zeros after it, stars and planets will be his. If we wanted to divide all the stars in the universe among every human on Earth, all 7.5 billion people, each person on Earth would have over a trillion stars to his name. And the amazing thing is, this isn't too big for Jesus. His inheritance isn't bigger than he is. This isn't too much for him to handle. His inheritance is perfectly fitting to his status. Every atom will be his. Everything will be under his dominion. And once he receives it, there's nothing, no one that can take it away, no one that can rightfully claim it as theirs. And yet, how often do we get caught up in the possessions of this world? trying to obtain a comfortable and secure life. Neglecting in the end that everything will be handed over to Jesus. Our possessions aren't our possessions. They are merely loaned to us for a short time. Once we realize that, once we internalize that, we, re we can see that 
we are able to use everything much more faithfully. And just, just a side note, Jesus had every right to take his inheritance and to keep it for himself. When we get to heaven, Jesus has every right to make us poor in heaven. I think most of us would take that. If we were given the option to be the richest man on earth or the poorest person in heaven, I think most of us would take the poorest person in heaven. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't make us poor in heaven. He makes us co-heirs with him. Romans 8, 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus wants to share his inheritance with us. He wants us to enjoy the riches that he will receive. I think the author could have stopped there and his point would have been made. But he starts to dive deeper into the deity of Christ with his creatorship. Third point, creator. The end of verse two, through whom he also created the world. The Bible is by no means silent when it comes to the creation of the world. The first two chapters of the Bible are devoted to explaining how a loving God created the earth and gave dominions, gave human dominion over that earth. You can't go very far in the Bible without coming across a passage that talks about creation and God being creator. In Nehemiah, the Israelites are once again repenting of turning away from God. And in their prayer of repentance, they start with God's majesty in being creator. Nehemiah 9.6, you are Yahweh, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. There is a sense of eminence that is tied with being creator. In Revelation, it says, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. By your will, they existed and were created. The Bible is very clear that God himself, God Almighty, Yahweh, created the earth and in his infinite power spoke this universe into existence. And Hebrews, along with many other passages in the Bible, tell us that Jesus was not only there to witness creation, but he played the role of creator himself. Colossians 1.16 tells us, For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Just like we read earlier, John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. John then goes to say how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. Jesus was that word. He was with God, but even greater than that, he is God. There's no getting around the deity of Jesus. You can't somehow twist the scriptures to say that Jesus was merely a good man, a good teacher, a wise sage. He is God, God, very God. And while it's true that he created the physical universe, That's not the word that's being used in this passage. The word meaning physical uh, universe in the Greek is the word cosmos. I think it's a word most of us are familiar with. That's not the word that's being used here in Hebrews. It's the word ionis or ages, talking about time. It could read through whom he created the ages. Jesus' creatorship stretches past the creation of the physical universe. He is the creator of the concept of time. 
In this life, it's often said that Father Time is undefeated. We are prisoners of time. Time is our most precious resource. Jesus created time. He is the ruler over time. The only reason why time continues to go on is because Jesus wills it to. And how often do we think that Jesus is smaller than his creation? That God himself in in the person of Jesus is smaller or less majestic than his creation. But that's what we do, isn't it? Whenever we worship something else, whenever we let anything else take take the place of him, that's what we're doing. We're saying that what he created is greater than him. Our sin is a proclamation and a buying into the lie that sin is better than Jesus and that the satisfaction that the sin provide is better than the satisfaction that Jesus provides. Again, that's what sin does. It causes a forgetfulness of Jesus, a forgetfulness of who God is and the promise that he gives us. We need to fight to remember that Jesus is far better than his creation that a creator is far more worthy than that which he's created. As we dive deeper into the deity of Christ, we come across the next point, Jesus as the radiance. The beginning of verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The word radiance here is the only place in the New Testament that this word appears. It's a combination of two Greek words literally meaning light flashing forth or to gleam. Jesus gleams, he radiates, he flashes forth the glory of God. And an illustration that I've heard a lot that tries to explain this relationship is the relationship between the the sun and the moon. How the moon reflects the sun's light, and by the sun we can see the moon. But that, that analogy has a lot of faults. Without the sun, the moon can't shine. The moon has no light source of its own. Without the sun, the moon is just a dark piece of rock in the sky. Jesus, the glory he radiates, the glory that he shows us, is his father's, yes, but it is his own. Think of the transfiguration in Mark 9. It says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And the, the encounter between Saul and Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And Saul said, I am, or Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The blinding glory that was being shown to Paul, Saul and being shown to the disciples was Jesus' own glory. A glory that the Father and Jesus share, but have in their own separate beings. We've seen in the Old Testament parts of the glory of God. Like I said earlier, Moses was shown the backside of the glory of God in Exodus 33. And we've seen in the Old Testament the results when God's glory isn't honored when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant. But we have the fullness of the glory of God in Jesus. We have nothing left to wonder when it comes to God's glory when we look at Jesus. There is no glory of God, no part of the glory of God that Jesus was unable to capture in his human form. And that's explained even more in the next part, the exact representation of his nature. The the word representation is a tool for engraving or a seal. And I want us to think of of a wax seal. Someone melts wax onto a letter or decree and they press a ring into that hot wax. And that that ring leaves an impression in the wax as it dries. And when the ring is pulled away, 
you can see the wax seal that it leaves behind and you can know exactly what the ring looks like. You can see the different curves, the different waves that make up its unique shape, an impression that only that ring can make. That's the same thing with the Father and Jesus. We have never seen the ring itself. We have never seen the Father, but we can know we have seen the wax seal that it leaves behind. We have seen Jesus throughout the words of Scripture. And since we have the wax seal, since we have Jesus, we can know exactly what the ring looks like. We can know exactly what the Father looks like. We have nothing to wonder when it comes to the Father. The Father and Jesus have the same disposition. They have the same nature. They work together. They operate under the same will. I want you to turn to the book of John, John chapter 14. The disciples had a hard time grasping this in the book of John. The disciples just had Jesus wash their feet. They had Jesus tell them that somebody was going to betray them. Peter just had Jesus told him he was going to deny him. It was a, a long day for them. And then Jesus goes on to tell them in chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That is that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you do not still know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is telling them that he's going somewhere to prepare a place for them. And Thomas asks a pretty good question. He asks how they can go where Jesus is going. And Jesus responds with one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He goes on to say that they have seen the Father because they have seen him. And Philip, in true disciple fashion, asked a very dumb question. He asked them how they can, if they can see the Father and then it would be enough. And Jesus being so kind, is helping Philip, who very much needed it, telling him that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is nothing less than God. He is no less, than God, of the, he is no less God than God the Father is God. These Jews were missing this. They thought they were going back to God by abandoning Jesus. They thought they were going back to the true God by leaving Christianity not even knowing that they were abandoning God by going back to God. How often does Jesus fall into the less-than-God category in our minds? How often does he become simply a good man, the prime example of what it means to be a good person? 
To turn your face from Jesus is to turn your face from, as we've seen earlier, the creator, the judge of the world. The author is asking us to turn to Jesus, knowing that when we do, we are turning our face to God, the God of the universe. And when we do finally turn to God, we're not met with a God crossing his arms, waving his finger at us, saying, what took you so long? We are met with a God who is overjoyed, ecstatic that we return to him, that we are seeing him for who he is. So far, we've seen that Jesus is representative, that he is heir, creator, and he's the radiance of God. Fifth characteristic, you can turn back to Hebrews, is Jesus is the upholder. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, scientists love to argue that this world came to being by accident and that it's sustaining itself by accident. But the word here, upholds, is in present tense, meaning that Jesus is currently, as we speak, sustaining this world, this solar system, this galaxy, this universe. Hebrews is very clear that Jesus Jesus is playing an active role in his creation, that the God of the Bible is not the God of deism. He's not a watchmaker that created a watch, made a watch, sold it, wound it up, sold it, just to never see it again. No, Jesus is, is very much involved. And the role that Jesus plays grows the more that we think about it. Think about the function of each individual cell. I know most of us probably learned and forgot the function of the cell. But zoom out. Think about gravity the orbits of the planets, the rotation of the earth, different seasons, different ecosystems. Jesus could neglect any one of these, and it would mean death. But Jesus, in his kindness, in his love, sustains the world, keeps it from folding in on itself. It's a work he loves, a work he enjoys. It's not like the mythological creature Atlas, who was burdened and punished with upholding the celestial globe on his shoulders. You've probably seen pictures or statues of him. He's often depicted on his knees, grimacing and grunting at the weight of the skies. There's many stories where he tries to trick unsuspecting travelers into taking his burden from him so he can have a moment of relief from his punishment. That's not Jesus. He's not hoping that someone will come along and take the responsibility from him. He loves to keep his creation held together. He's not only sustaining the physical world, but he's also sustaining you and me. The only reason why we were able to come here this morning is because he told our eyes to open. He's the one sustaining the operations of our bodies. He told our hearts to keep beating. He let our lungs take in oxygen. He told our brains to fire the electrical signals it needs. He delays the destruction of those who have turned against him, of those who think they are the reason they are thriving. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he's done and what he is now doing or what he intends to do. How often do we depend on ourselves for our own security? depend on ourself, to uphold ourself. I want us to realize that Jesus is being so kind in giving us this morning. Whether you're a believer or not, 
If you're not, he's giving you this morning to turn and repent, to bow the knee to Christ and declare that he is Lord. And if you are a believer, he's giving us this morning another day to worship him, to honor him and glorify him for the kindness that he, shows, he is showing us. We wouldn't be alive if it weren't for Jesus' upholding word this morning. These Jews that thought that Jesus was to blame for their hardships, that life would have gotten better if they abandoned Jesus. They were probably right. Their earthly life would have most likely gotten better if they abandoned Jesus and went back to the temple. But life is so much more than life on this earth. And that brings us to our last point, Jesus as purifier. The end of verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our life doesn't end on this earth. Once we close our eyes in this life, we open them in the life that will never end. And we, in our natural state, are condemned to hell. We have sinned before a holy God, a God whose standard is perfection, a standard that all of us have fallen far short of. Adam and Eve were the first to fall short of this standard. And God, instead of killing them on the spot, sacrificed an animal. He then instituted sacrifices into the religious system of Israel as a reminder of their standing before God. And God, through that, established the priesthood. And among those group of priests, there was a high priest. And that job of high priest was a very, very important job. They were a mediator between God and man, a bridge between the divine and the filthy. And this high priest offered sacrifice after sacrifice, killing goat after goat, lamb after lamb. Their job was never done. There was always sin that needed to be atoned for. But there, there was a problem with this sacrificial system. The priest, before they could offer a sacrifice on somebody else's behalf, they had to offer a sacrifice on their own behalf. Another problem was that the blood of goats, of lambs, could not take away the sins of men. Hebrews 10.4 makes that very clear. So something had to be done. A different sacrifice had to be made, and that's where Jesus comes in. Just like we read earlier, we talked about earlier, Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the life that we needed to live, the life that we didn't live. Oh, a life worthy of God's standard, a life with no hint of sin. There was not one sinful action, one sinful thought, one sinful motive throughout Jesus' whole life. And so Jesus was able to make the sacrifice that needed to be made without having to make a sacrifice for his own sin. So when the time had come, he went to offer the sacrifice that needed to be made, but he didn't offer up an animal. No, and Hebrews 9.12 tells us he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing and eternal redemption. Jesus endured the punishment that was meant for us. He endured the wrath of a holy God on that cross. And with his final breath, what, what did he proclaim? It is finished. To tell us I paid in full. There was no need for any more sacrifices because Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And his lifeless body, his dead body, was put into his grave. But like we celebrated two weeks ago, his 
he didn't stay dead. His body didn't stay in that grave. No, he walked out. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And as the rest of Hebrews 1.3 tells us, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The priest was never able to sit down because their work was never finished. There was always a sacrifice that needed to be made, sin that needed to be atoned for. But Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice is different in that there was no, no, no longer any need for another sacrifice to be made. No longer does Jesus see our sinful actions, our sinful thoughts, our sinful motives. He sees Jesus's. He gave us a redemption that is eternal, a redemption that cannot be taken away. If we were responsible for purifying ourselves, we could have no confidence that it worked. Jesus gave us something outside of ourselves to rely on, something to hope in, to trust in, to believe in. And yet, how often do we retreat back to ourselves? Feel like we have to perform in order to obtain our redemption. He has already made us clean. And yet, so often we think we have to add something to his sacrifice, and that is what secures our redemption. His sacrifice is greater than any sin we can commit. It's often said that we are great sinners, but we have a greater Savior. And yet, the author of Hebrews is imploring with us to not let our sin diminish Jesus. Don't let the view of Jesus diminish in our view. Don't let every sin we commit dismiss the sacrifice that Jesus has made to accept him, to love him, and worship him as purifier. And Hebrews 2.1 beautifully explains why these things are important to study, things to ponder. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We need to ponder on the role of Jesus, both the role that he deserves and the role that we ourselves let him play. It needs to be a daily thought as it is a daily fight. And the author wants to help us put Jesus in that rightful spot, and he wants us to keep him there. He wants to show us that Jesus is the solution, the solution to any spiritual ailment that we may suffer from. There is no one to point to other than Jesus. There is nothing more worthy of our attention, more worthy of our affections than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the difference maker in this life. He is the definitive solution. These Hebrews weren't convinced of that, and sometimes we aren't convinced of that. That's why we need to come back to a place like Hebrews, a passage like Hebrews 1, that tells us so clearly that there is no one more deserving than Jesus, than Jesus, the Son of God, the one who paid it all. So as we come before him through communion, Let's put Jesus in the spot he deserves, preeminent in our lives, praising him and glorifying him for all that he is and all that he's done. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we stand before you, dirty, unworthy, rebellious sinners, Lord. But Lord, we've been made clean. We've been made clean by your blood. Lord, sin had, wa- had left a crimson stain that your blood washed white as snow. Lord, and through that blood, we have been made heirs, sons, daughters, and co-heirs with Christ. A work that was accomplished not by anything we did, but by everything that Christ has done. A work that was accomplished so long ago, but still rings true today. 
Lord, I pray that we would place Jesus where he deserves, as preeminent over our lives, as supreme over all. We thank you for our redemption that is eternal, a secure, eternal redemption. Bless our time in communion that we would see the beauty in being able to approach you with boldness. Lord, we don't have to be afraid. Lord, I pray that you will sustain us until you return or until you call us home. In your name I pray, amen. As the men pass out the elements, would you take them and hold on to them? And don't take them yet, we'll take them together. But as we sing this song, would you meditate your heart on Christ, on his beauty as Ricky just preached, and on the gospel? Um, So listen to these words, Jesus paid it all.